How many of you uh, remembered? Well, I guess all of you remembered to turn your clocks forward. That's why you're here. <laughs> so I commend you for not forgetting uh, to do that. How many of you have ever had a, a, a seminal event, something, uh, some teaching or something that you got that really altered the way that you viewed something, be it your work or relationships? I know I had that once going to a men's retreat, and the speaker was talking about the responsibility of men and women in the workplace, and I'd never heard of that. I grew up in a tradition where uh, the work of God was done by the hired people in the church, the pastor, the assistant pastor, and so on. And um, this gentleman was teaching just the opposite. Well, not the opposite. He said, look, the work of the ministry is to be done by everyone. And he said, in the Bible, there is no word retirement. And my goal all my life as I started out as a young lawyer was to make enough money and build up this big nest egg so that I could have a wonderful retirement. And totally out of character. When the guy said, there's no retirement in, in the Bible, I said, what? Because it was such a shocking statement to me. And, and you know how shy I am, and I would never speak out like that in the normal course of events. And, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, there's no retirement in the Bible. You work for the Lord until the day you die. Oh, that just flustered me to no end. And this um, parable today is that kind, of, uh, that kind of story. And so Dick has kindly agreed to take any complaints that you may have as a result of the sermon, uh, that's Dick over there, our pastor. And uh, he, he said, is, the angrier you are, the more he would like to talk to you after the service. I myself have another appointment and won't be able to hang around. Um, so I'm going to uh, ask you to turn to your uh, bulletins on page four. And... Uh, I'm going to read this, and if you'll just uh, follow along with your eyes as I read, then I'll pray and we'll begin the, the message. It's called The Parable of the Ten Minas. And for you who are from Boston, it, it's, not, it's not the people who work underground doing ore. I just wanted to make this, okay? While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, meaning Jesus, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him. We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina was, has earned ten more. 
Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have, um, can't read this, okay, there we go. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second uh, came and said, sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. And he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. So let's take a, a moment and pray together. Uh, God, we... Uh, uh, ask uh, you to be with us and to give us understanding of the truths in this uh, parable and show us how in a practical way we can apply them to our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, uh, last week, just a little background, you, you heard the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Jesus had told the tax collector whom he had seen climbing a tree to gain a view of Jesus. He said, Zacchaeus, come down today. I must stay uh, at your house. And um, Zacchaeus told Jesus that he had given half his possessions uh, to the poor. And if he had cheated anyone, he was going to restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, today... Salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to save, uh, came to seek and save what was lost. Now, while the people were still listening, we hear in our text, while they were listening to what Jesus had just said about Zacchaeus and that the, the salvation was coming today, he spoke the parable of the ten minors that we just read, and the, the text gives us the reason for the parable in verse 1, uh, in verse 11. Because, one, he was near Jerusalem, and two, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Because of those two factors, he gave the parable. So let's put it in context. He's uh, about six or seven days from uh, the Passover. Uh, his crucifixion is imminent. The, the people don't realize that even the disciples whom he has taught have, keep putting this idea out of their minds. Uh, and interest has reached a fever pitch that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
And for the people, when Jesus said, today salvation is near, they're thinking of salvation as the expulsive power of God. He's going to expel the hated Roman occupiers from Israel, and he is going to restore Israel to its previous eminence, as in the days of Solomon. And so this excitement has just built up. And you can imagine, Jesus has for two and a half years done things like calm storms. He has fed 5,000 with uh, five loaves and two fishes, and then fed another 4,000 with another paltry sum. He was making something, in effect, appear out of nothing. He was raising the dead. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was giving sight to the blind, uh, speech to the mute. People who were lepers were being healed immediately. People with broken bones and medical problems for years were jumping up and rejoicing. And here he has said, today, salvation has come to the house of, um, house of Zacchaeus. And Passover is only a little bit away. It's less than a week away. And Jesus is en route to Jerusalem. And they're expecting the king to come through Jerusalem and just wipe everything out. They'll never have to work again. There's going to be food coming out of everywhere. No more cash registers because you won't need any money. No more sickness. Oh, this is all going to happen. And I, I was just reading this, trying to identify with this. And the thing that came to my mind was an event that happened in our own nation's history on September 22, 1862. Let me read this. Whereas on the day of uh, 22nd day of September, A.D., 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following. That on the first day of January, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall then, thenceforward, and forever be free. Now, just imagine, as I read this, I, I could now really identify with what is happening to the Jewish people around David. Here it is, one week before the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation. And there have been, there have been rumors circulating that President Lincoln is going to sign a document emancipating all slaves thenceforward and forever. No more master's whip. No more families forcibly divided. I'm able to work for myself and for my family. I can raise my children without any thought that someone could come and take them away and sell them to another person. Just imagine the excitement in the slave community in the United States hearing this news. And that's what it was like around Zacchaeus. And Jesus, seeing this fever pitch of excitement, gave them this parable to put it in perspective because they were going to forcibly make him king. They were going to lift him up and march into Jerusalem. And as they passed, I imagine every Roman soldier they passed, 
Your time is up, buddy. Out of here. And Jesus had to put things in perspective for them. So here's the point. Jesus is going to leave. His saints must work for the kingdom while he is absent, while he is physically absent. He will return and he will take account. He will return and he will take account. Because, see, they thought the kingdom was going to magically appear in front of them. No labor by them, just out of nothing. Everything is going to be green. Everything is going to bloom. Water will be pure. The streets will be lined with gold. All of this was going to happen magically in front of their very eyes. Uh, And he has already given the parable about the mustard seed, which they didn't get. That the mustard seed is the smallest seed in the garden, he said. And when you plant it, yet it grows to be the biggest tree in the garden. But they didn't understand that when the seed is planted, it had to be tilled, it had to be watered, it was going to grow, it had to be pruned, it had to be fertilized. They didn't get the parable of the mustard seed. And and we see that example of the mustard seed in our own uh, church. Remember, for those of you who were here at the beginning, Harbor started at the Clarion Hotel downtown with with a few people. And now... Uh, the mustard seed is, is, is beginning to grow. And there was one site, and then two, and three, and now eight, and we're, or nine, and we're planting more. Uh, but it's growing, and we, some of us may never live to see the full growth of this particular seed. Some of you have ex- experienced this in your own life. You, you started as a, a, a Christian, and where you are now, when you look back at where you had been, Aren't you sometimes amazed at where God has brought you from from the point of like, uh, if I may. There's a woman I know. I know well. From a point of being so shy that she couldn't speak to people in a public setting. God has taken her to the point where She can speak comfortably in a public setting to hundreds of women. The growth from that little mustard seed, it happens corporately in the community and it happens within. So if you have your trusty bulletin and look at my first point of the outline, loving God and doing his business is part of what this parable is about. Loving God and doing his business. This is not a parable about how to be saved. Um, And it is a parable about the kingdom of God, even though uh, Jesus doesn't use the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, which is often how he begins his parables. The kingdom of heaven is like. But the characters here are this man of noble birth, the servants, and it's the Greek word there, doulos, for slaves, and then his citizens or subjects, and that's the Greek word polis, from which we get political or not police, but political. And the minors, a matter of uh, a certain amount of currency, is given to his slaves, his servants, to do business while he is gone. And his instruction is, in verse 13, put this money to work. 
And when he comes back and he deals with one of them who has taken the one minor and turned it into ten, he says in verse 13, Well done, my good servant, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, uh, take charge of ten cities. So naturally the question is, well, what was the work? What, what did they put to work? What was that about? John 5:17. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And we see in this passage, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. So that there is work done on the outside, and there is work done on the inside of us. But we start with the work done on the inside first. And that is first receiving the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. Receiving the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. And then taking that gospel and letting it saturate deeply so that God begins to transform us by the working of the word in our lives through his spirit. And that inside work is expressed in so many different ways. And many of you have experienced this inside work where you had anger toward someone justly for what they did to you, but you have forgiven them in your heart. Where you had wronged somebody and you went to them and you apologized and asked them to forgive you. Where you had some driving passion or addiction which, has, which had previously moved God either out of your life or to the periphery of your life. And God has removed that passion and replaced it with himself. And that that previous passion is now out of our lives or on the periphery. That's part of the inside work of doing his business. And that inside work also has an outside aspect, that is, what people see. Because a lot of that inside work is done, and only God sees it. Maybe only God knows your brokenheartedness about how you treated someone. Or only God knows how much you struggled with uh, uh, having to forgive someone who may not even know that you wronged them or may not even care, and yet bring you to the point of being ready to forgive notwithstanding. But the outside work is what we see and what we benefit from. We, we see it, for example, when Christine and Carla came up and spoke today that uh, some of you gave, went out, took the time to buy gifts and bring them to Harbor's store where people could with dignity buy gifts that they otherwise would not be able to afford. What prompted you to do that was a work of God on the inside, which is expressed outside with people like Christine and Carla working to set up uh, the, the Christmas Day shopping and to work with the young kids there. And so this work that you and I are doing is that mustard seed while the king is away, while the king is away, 
it's the kingdom is not going to miraculously appear except within our lives and as he works in us and through us. When we, you know, there's that commercial. I can't remember what it is. It's like an ESPN type commercial. But wherever the guy walks in front of him, a, a road appears magically. Have you seen that commercial? All right, I'll skip that since you haven't seen it. Look for it now that I've told you about it. But you and I are the ones that God is going to use to take the mustard seed to build his kingdom. So what motivates? So we know the work. The work is to surrender to God through the gospel, make the gospel saturate our lives, and then share it with others whenever we get the opportunity. Well, what motivated these two servants to do that? It it would have to be love. Uh, They were servants bound to the master, and it was love that created the bondage. That love created a desire to please. So so let me give you a a personal example of what I mean. Now, I'm faithful to my wife, and and I love her. And, And that love has pushed out other competing loves that might distract or harm our relationship. So uh, Halle Berry called, and I told her that I don't have time to talk to her. She said, but I want to get together. I said, well, I have another greater love that pushes your love out of being an interest to me. Call someone else. Um, God, and I want to please her. I know that she likes fidelity. I know that she likes flowers. I know that she loves art. Uh, And unfortunately, she also likes yard work. Well, you know, this love pushes you to do things that you don't want to do. For me, it's like yard work. The gospel is like that. There are many things in the gospel when God calls us to do it. We say, that's right up my alley. I want to do that. Let me at it. But then he comes along, and I don't know if this has happened in your life, but it's happened in my life, where God comes along and says, now I'd like you to do this. You say, but, oh, I really don't want to do that. He said, I know, Bill, but I want you to do it. Well, how about instead of doing that, how about if I do two of the other things that I like doing? I'll step it up. He says, well, that's good, but I want you to do this thing. And it is the love that God puts in our hearts for him that pushes out the things that would distract us from God so that he works in us to do the things that he wants us to do. It's an expulsive love. It pushes out the contrary things so that we can receive the love that God has for us and can express it in the way he wants us to express it. So what is one of the things that pleases God? Well, we know that without faith from Hebrews, it is impossible to please him because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So he is not talking about faith in general. He's not talking about faith in the Padres or 
faith in our government or faith in our economic system or faith in our family. He's talking about faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith in the living God, it is impossible to please him. And of course, by the definition of faith, which is a commitment without knowing, we don't know all the facts yet, every single human being alive, regardless of culture, age, race, walks by faith. Because we are all called upon to make commitments without knowing continuously. For example, Dana and I had to go to San Jose last weekend. We left on a Friday morning. I board the Southwest plane. I do not know whether they have the right amount of fuel or the right kind of fuel in that airplane. I do not know whether on that particular day the pilot has a death wish. I don't know that. But I make a commitment to board the plane not knowing these things. Now, I can rationalize it. Well, they're not going to put in the wrong kind of fuel because they got such an investment in it. But that's all rationalization. The fact is I've made a commitment to boarding without knowing whether I will safely arrive. You see? But my faith is not in Southwest, although it's a good airline, Scott, very good airline. And my faith is not in the pilot who flies it. My faith is in God who's going to take me from San Diego to San Jose. So everybody lives by faith. And the issue is in whom is your faith placed, not whether you have it. So let me give you um, another verse from John 5.20. The Father loves the Son. So our work is to let the Father put in our hearts a deep love for Jesus Christ. Our work is to let God put in our hearts the faith that turns our attention to Jesus. Our work is to let God use us to do that in other people, to be a help and not a hindrance to other people learning the same thing that we learn. So let me give you two definitions. Your vocation, your vocation, what you and I would call our job, is that. Our vocation is to love God, enjoy him forever, to receive the gospel and share it with others. That's our job. Our avocation is merely the way God gives us to fund our vocation. So... If you are a stay-at-home mom or a CEO or a lawyer or a doctor or a scientist or a pilot or a student, we all have the same vocation. We may have different avocations to fund it, but we all equally have the same obligation to love God, enjoy him forever, to receive the gospel, to build it into our lives through the Spirit and to share it with others. That's our job. I remember when Dana was a stay-at-home mom homeschooling our children, how could God use her? And she determined that God was calling her to disciple women, one at a time over 10 to 15 weeks. And she did it faithfully. She worked out her schedule. I don't know how she managed to do it. But she did it. If you are a student in college, 
your avocation still does not detract from or alter your vocation. Uh, in the workplace, I think of Candace Cole and how she has, in her workplace, had an impact for God. You have to have her tell you that story. It's a marvelous story. I don't have time to go into it. Or Sandy Capoletti and, and Dana and Candace, they go to the rescue mission the fourth Friday of every month. And others of you are doing the same thing in your own way. If you're retired, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or woman, whether you're a grandmother or grandfather, your job has not ceased. Your vocation has not ceased. Your avocation may have changed. And you may move from city to city or avocation to avocation, but our vocation never changes. So here's the principle. All believers must do God's work. All believers must do God's work. Well, that leads to this one servant who, uh, misunderstanding God, ignored God's business. Misunderstanding God, he ignored God's business. There's this uh, wonderful passage, of, of course, in uh, one of the, it's either the first and second or the second and third commandment in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods besides me, beside me, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And that is, God says, I want you to understand me as I reveal myself to you. Not the God of our imaginations, not the God of cultural shaping, but the God of scripture. And we are like this ourselves. This is a principle that is deeply embedded in our own hearts. Let me give you an example. So I'm married to this fantastic woman who happens to be named Dana. Dana loves the idea, the, the sense of uh, being faithful to her husband and having a faithful husband. She loves flowers, she loves art, and she loves children. All right, those are four key things about my wife. Now suppose I say to Dana, you know, Dana, one of the things I like about you and why I think we ought to get married is that um, I want to see how this works out. We ought to get married for five years. And then at the end of five years, take another look at it and see if it works and whether we should continue. And see, you're open to that. And, and also, I hate kids. And, and so you and I can relate because you, ha you hate kids. And I don't want flowers around my house. I want to I wanna have that nice cement everywhere and just paint it different, different colors. See, that's, Dana, it, it, if, if I said that to Katie or Candace, this is why I like Dana, they would have to look at me and say, I don't know who you think you're loving, but that's not Dana. You've got somebody else in your mind. And, and would you... Would Dana want to marry me? And think about that for yourself. Well, God's the same way. He said, look, it's not the God that you imagine. It's not the God of your cultural shaping. I will reveal myself to you in Scripture. I am God. And so this servant had this misunderstanding about God, but wherever he got it, it wasn't from the revelation of God himself. He had dreamed this up. And then based on his misconception of God, 
he didn't do work because his misconception is that God is hard, mean, and unforgiving. And so he was afraid to labor and make a mistake. So he just buried it away, not understanding God's heart to do business. And so when the king comes back, he says, look, well, based on, I knew you were a hard man. And that's why in the scripture it says, so you knew I was a hard man, did you? Your own judgments condemn you. And there is a tendency to have two very different views of God which share one characteristic. They have nothing to do with the God of the scripture. And one is this view that this particular servant had, that it, God is an oppressive God, that he is a, a, a narrow-minded, pursuing rule maker. And every time we want to do something good, he says, whoa, I got a rule that you can't do that. And we turn the other way and we're confronted with another rule. And so in frustration, why try? We throw up our hands. I just, I'm just going to bury what God has given me until the time has passed. But there's an, another view that's equally wrong, but for a different reason. And that's the God who is not concerned about anything. It's a laissez-faire God. Do what you want as long as it makes you happy. Do what you want as long as it feels good. For example, I, I know a Christian woman, well, a young woman. Uh, she'd actually gone to school with Dana, and she came to Christ. She was so excited about what Christ had to offer and she now wanted a godly husband. And so she went to an older woman in the first church she joined with excitement about this newfound relationship with Christ and wanting to have a relationship with a man that mirrored that relationship. And the older woman in church said, well, look, in order to get a man, you're going to have to have sex with him before you get married. But that's all right. You can always repent later. See, that's the true story. That's the laissez-faire attitude. Neither view has anything to do with God. But if you subscribe to the oppressive view, you may yourself, the consequence is that you become a rule maker. And then you start judging people. You set up your own rules, and you start judging people by whether or not they comply with the rules you have set up, which you think are in the Bible. And if they met your rules, they're okay. And if they haven't met your rules, they're not okay. The problem is, of course, that nobody meets the rules like you do. So basically, you're the only one that's okay. And, and then the problem with the other view is that there is no spiritual discipline in your life because you don't think you're accountable to God for anything. Everything you want to do is okay because you want to do it. Uh, and this... Um, teaches us that we are accountable to God uh, for what we do. Ephesians 2, verse 10, has this great passage. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the issue here for us is simply faithfulness to opportunity. So let me give you uh, an example. Let's say we have an oval track for a race. And on the, in the lanes, in one lane, there's a guy with one leg. 
in one lane, there's a guy with no legs. And in another lane, there's a guy like Emmett Smith who, you know, he, he's a beautiful body, uh, can sprint. And, and they're all in the lanes, and they all have to run the race. And we say, well, well, well that's not fair without understanding that God places the finish line appropriately. The guy for, for, with no legs may be placed and staggered so that he's a foot from the finish line. And the guy with uh, no legs, he's an inch from the finish line. And the guy who has to sprint may be a mile away. And the issue is not who beats who over the, over the finish line. That's not the point. The issue is that God places the finish line in such a way that everyone gets to cross, regardless of where they are. The autistic child has as much an opportunity to glorify God as the genius, because it's faithfulness to opportunity, taking what you have to do the work of God. So. That leads us to this third group, who were not part of the doulos or servants. They were the subjects. They were the subjects. The ones who should have been open to the king are the ones who rejected him. And so my point here is that hating God leads to rejecting his business. Hating God leads to rejecting his business. They said in verse 14, we don't want this man to be our king. And they were not given in this parable any business to do for the king. God did not entrust to the, the nobleman did not entrust to them any of his business. And they are still answerable to the king nonetheless. Here's the principle. Although a man may reject God, he will always be accountable to God. Although a man may reject God, he will always be accountable to God. Well, this parable so powerfully points to Jesus Christ himself. I mean, we, we know that he is the only one who ever worked perfectly. Jesus said in John um, eight twenty nine, I always do what pleases him. I have been able to say that several times in my life this way. Lord, so far I have not had a lustful thought. I have not spoken ill of a single person. I have not been greedy, nor have I been fearful, nor have I lied. But I'm about to get out of bed now. And it's going to be a lot harder from this point on. Have mercy on me and help me. But Jesus Christ is the only one who could say, I always do what pleases him. And in John 5, he says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. 
And we know from the end of John that Jesus did many great works. John said, you know, if we could make the sky a scroll and all the seas an ink pen, we would never be able to write down what Jesus did. But his greatest work was the cross. The work that made all other work possible appeared to be the utter failure of Jesus' own work. His is the work that gives our work value and meaning. And because of his work, God gives out of all proportion to our labors. Look, a mina is not a lot of money. And the one took one and had ten minas, and one took one and had five. And what did they get in return? One got leadership of ten cities. One got leadership of five cities. It is so far out of proportion to what they have done as to make us laugh at the ridiculous generosity of it. God is the God who will redirect the Amazon to water one flower. That God has given us his son to die on the cross so that we may have all things in Christ. The Bible says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I don't know if you remember the, what has been called the greatest Super Bowl ever, when the St. Louis Rams played the Tennessee Titans. And um, the Rams were ahead by... Um, just a very small margin. And Tennessee, within their, within their own five-yard line, or they were five yards from the goal line, um, Dante Culpepper, I think it was Dante Culpepper, threw a pass to Kevin Dyson, the wide receiver, who caught it. And it looked like Tennessee is going to win this thing. It, it was the last play of the game. And the crowd was in a fever pitch because it had been back and forth, an exciting game. And here's this last play, and the pass is completed. Dyson gets it. He streaks five yards to the goal line, and there's no one around. The St. Louis fans are pulling their hair out. And out of nowhere comes Mike Jones, who tackles him at the, at the one-yard line, and the ball stops an inch from the goal line an inch from the goal line. And there is a little quote here. It says, one tackle made the world spin, made hearts stop, and took everyone's breath away. One tackle started a flow of champagne in St. Louis and the flow of tears in Tennessee. And, and that is a picture of the cross. When Satan and the demons saw the cross, celebration. Game's over. And they've won. Son of God is the victor. 
And sometimes in our own lives, we think, the reason I'm not going to try as a single mom, as a retired grandmother, whatever the issue, is I'm going to fail. I'm going to get tackled. Right there, just when I think it's I can score. So why try? Why labor? I've always been a screw-up. Things have never worked out for me. But the point is that Jesus did cross the line. And even if we get tackled so that the ball stops at the one-inch line, the point is not our score. The point is that Jesus has already done the work. So that when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Because of that, none of our labors, none of our labors are in vain. If, if we share the gospel with someone and they tell us to go to hell, they don't want to hear it. When I shared the gospel with Dana's entire family at Christmas, first time I've ever done it, let me tell you, I did a lousy job. This is not humility. Dana will tell you. I mean, I looked at her, and I knew that I had done a lousy job. But then I took such comfort in the fact that it wasn't about me that Jesus had not failed, that his word will not return unto him void. And the issue was not whether I crossed the finish line. The issue is that Jesus has already crossed it. And so that gives us as believers the freedom to make risky ventures. It's all right. Carla to tell your classmates that Jesus Christ is Savior. Corey, it's all right to witness to somebody at work without knowing the outcome. Nan, it's all right to invite kids from your neighborhood to have story time in your home and read them the stories about Jesus Christ. We don't know where it's going to go. It's all right because it is finished. And our king is coming back. He asks us to be faithful to the opportunity because he has already done the work.